This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Michael Grillo, who's president and co-founder at Gravity Products. Michael, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, first things first, I want to point our listeners to your website, and I want to be uh, careful about the URL. So the company name is Gravity Products, but the website is gravityblankets.com. Yes. And that will become obvious why in just a minute, but I just want to exactly. make sure everybody gets the right URL. So gravityblankets.com. Michael, give us the elevator pitch for Gravity Blankets. Yeah, so Gravity uh, Gravity Blankets are a uh, premium-grade therapeutic weighted blanket. Um, weighted blankets have been shown to reduce stress um, and anxiety and help promote a more a deeper, more restful sleep. Um, it's based on the, the premise of uh, what the medical community calls deep-touch pressure stimulation. It's essentially the, the same sensation that um, you get when you're being hugged or embraced, similar to the way infants are embraced uh, or being held in their mother's womb. It's that sort of uh, a lot of great research around that and how that helps sort of calm the nervous system. All right. So let's start with the what the product actually is. So it's pretty, I would say, reasonably self-explanatory. It's gravity blankets is a weighted blanket. But maybe just walk us through a little bit what it looks and feels like. Yeah, so um, you know, weighted blankets have been around for some time, but but sort of have been relegated, or previously had been relegated to the medical community. So um, you know, kids uh, with autism spectrum disorder, adults suffering from PTSD um, or sensory um, you know problems. The situation was though that these blankets that were available were not really available to the mass market and weren't very aesthetically pleasing. Um, our concept was that like this is a great you know sort of therapy for really anyone, not just those going through like acute periods of uh, mental illness. Um, so we sort of helped stylize them a bit. So it's a um, 42 by 48 by 72 uh, personal sized blanket that is a micro plush fleece duvet. So it's very soft, very comfortable. And on the inside of this duvet is a uh, you know a, uh, a weighted inner that is weighted with um, glass beads, um, so they're biodegradable. Um, and so they come in three sizes, 15, 20, and 25 pounds, and you select your size based on what you weigh. So we suggest 10% of your body weight. So if you're about 150 pounds, you would select the 15-pound um, blanket. All right. And then, uh, so say a little bit more, more about the history, or not necessarily of your company, but I, I'm curious about the history of their use. So they've been used in selective medical settings for decades, is that right? Or at least, you yeah, know, for a relatively long time? upwards of 20 years. Um, a yeah. lot of clinicians, uh, psychologists, social workers um, have sort of been thinking about them as actually like a really great non-prescription um, therapy for, for a variety of patient populations. Yeah. And there's a lot of great research um, on it in those particular populations. And so when we were thinking about the product, 
Um, there was really nothing that said that this couldn't be applied to a, a more you know broader community. We all suffer from stress, anxiety, um, you know, insomnia. Is a, sleep deprivation is a huge problem, very prevalent in the U.S. And so uh, that was sort of the the context, um, taking it out of these like you know smaller patient populations and into a mass market. Yeah. Now it, the insight is is really cool, and I th- I think it's a really nice insight. But I wonder about the the clinical evidence. So I, I, I'm, it's, it sounds like there's quite a bit of clinical evidence for use of weighted blankets in treating specific uh, issues. You mentioned autism and PTSD. Has there been clinical evidence on treating, say, insomnia or stress or more consumer-oriented uh, ailments? Yeah. So insomnia specifically has been studied as a symptom of those, um, you know, more specific yeah. ailments. Um, but we actually at, at Gravity Products are endeavoring to run the first branded study in a mm. general patient population. So uh, we're currently selecting um, our sample size for that now with results to be published in March 2019. So that'll be the first sort of general consumer, if you will, um, study on, on the product. All right. But and so I guess the the follow up on that would be, does that mean that at the present time you can make you have to be careful about claims that you make? Is there are there any FDA issues or anything like that with this? Product? Yeah, so it's not. So uh, that's a really good question. So it's not a a, reg, a regulated medical device. Mm-hmm. Um, so we aren't sort of regulated by the FDA, although, of course, we want to be very open and honest about um, marketing claims. I actually come from a, a pharmaceutical marketing background, mm. so I'm very familiar with like what you can and can't say. So we don't use words like, and it doesn't. It doesn't cure anxiety. It doesn't, you know, cure insomnia. These are it's 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 part of a holistic solution to help you know support better sleep, support um, stress reduction, mm-hmm. um, that type of stuff. Yeah. All right. So uh, take us back to the beginning. What you, you you told me the genesis of the technology, but what is the origin of the business? Where did the insight come from and how did you guys get started? Yeah, it's a super interesting um, story. So we actually started uh, the blanket and the Gravity Products entity was born out of a media company called um, Futurism. So Futurism.com is, is sure. sort of where I began my um, journey here. And, and um, we write about, you know, frontier science and technology and um, one of the, you know, as a new media startup, uh, we were thinking about ways to make revenue that weren't necessarily advertising-based revenue. So um, a lot of thoughts about like events and obviously like products was a really interesting uh, play as well. So developing our own products and selling them to our readers. Um, when we were looking at where to even begin from our product standpoint, um, we saw that a lot of the articles we were writing on the science of sleep, the science of you know, meditation and mindfulness and how that like transforms the brain um, were really popular amongst our readers. And so we began to play in that sort of sleep and wellness space and um, testing products in that space. And so uh, a couple of the products we tested, um, one of them was this notion of the weighted blanket, tested really well, and then we actually um, crowdfunded it. Um, it. Amazing success. We raised almost $5 million um, in the first 30 days. And then it sort of just took off from there. So we've been uh, a real company now for about 18 months, 19 months, um, have done almost $20 million in revenue since then and um, have a bunch of other products under the Gravity name and sort of are, are making a, a real play at this broader uh, wellness space. Yeah, so this is really interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the method you used because 
I think a lot of us have found ourselves in business situations where we say, okay, we got this thing and we got to figure out what else we might do because we want right. to grow or we want something different. So you, you said you kept referring to testing these ideas. So how did you test this idea? What gave you the insight that it was worth than trying a, a crowdfunding campaign? Yeah. yeah, we were doing a bunch of reader, you know, fairly standard reader surveys. I would say the most interesting thing we did was um, <clears throat> we put up a very, very basic landing page. Like um, uh, we didn't even have the name Gravity at, at the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm not actually even sure what the name of the URL yeah. was. I don't yeah. recall. But um, we set up a landing page and we were driving traffic to it and we were allowing people to go all the way down the funnel up until purchase, at mm. which point we would say like, oh, this product has sold out. So we were able to gauge actually like how cheaply we could acquire the customer. And because there was such a real interest in this particular product, the acquisition costs were so low. We were seeing, you know, $5 costs out of product we were theoretically pricing at over $200. So that gave us a really strong indicator that this is something that people want and uh, and we're clamoring to get. So that was sort of the, the tipping point for us saying, yeah, we definitely need to, to pursue well, this. But what was driving the traffic? Were they searching on a keyword weighted blanket or were they clicking through from an article that was talking about research or something like yeah, that? Yeah, we were, you know, Futurism, the media company was driving uh, traffic through our readership. Ah, I see. Yeah. So you were saying you were saying, hey, come come check out this new product or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Wow. I, it's it's really curious that that people had an instinct that they would want this thing. Um, I wonder why do you think that is they, they wouldn't necessarily have experienced it. Right. No, it, it's sort of the perfect. We call it the perfect storm in that it's it's got it's got a lot of really great you know, things that make sort of for a viral product, right? So it's got some novelty. Oh, this is a, you know, 20 pound blanket. So people are like, oh, that's intriguing. But then also it came out at a period of time where there was a real like palpable anxiety in society. You know, it was right after the um, 2016 election. So this came out in, you know, we started testing probably in February of 17. So mm -hmm. maybe like three or four months after the election. And just generally like a sense of sort of, societal angst about it and so i think that played a role i think the novelty of it played a role um i i'd like to think we did a really nice job like packaging it and, and it looked really nice and all that sort of stuff definitely played a role as well but it was sort of the perfect storm yeah so tell us about the kickstarter it's 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 really awesome your results yeah. but just tell us a little bit about it yeah yeah so kickstarter in general um is you know a platform where creators can come uh, present their ideas to the Kickstarter community, and the Kickstarter community will pledge. Um, and in exchange for their pledge, they are hoping that the creator delivers them the product that they're quote unquote investing in. And so, um, we saw a ton of really strong success. Like we were, we had thought we would do maybe, you know, we were taking bets before we launched. And we we're like, oh, we'll do, you know, we'll do a hundred thousand dollars. That'd be mm -hmm. like a huge win. And then we did that in the first hour of launch. And wow. so then it became like, oh, wow, we're going to do, you know, all right, well, let's up it to $500,000 and then we'd hit that day three. So, um, you know, before it was all said and done, we had done, you know, $4.7 million um, in, in sort of pre-sales. Um, and it was just like incredible. And we were getting, we were on the Today Show and we were, you know, um, in the New Yorker and, and all of these like amazing publications and just like a lot of attention on the, on the product. So it was, it was crazy. You know, the usual, I, I've run a couple Kickstarters myself, and the usual, and this was true for my products, the usual rule of thumb is you yourself need to drive maybe a third of the of, of the goal 
uh, from your own network. Did did you do that, or was it really this perfect storm, and you got just fantastically lucky in terms of the organic demand? Um, we, you know, future because it was born out of futures, and we definitely yeah. were driving a lot of um, traffic from you know futures and Facebook, our dot com. Um, so I, I would say we definitely our own properties did drive that maybe that 30%, but it mm-hmm. definitely the community got behind it in a major way. Yeah. And those like sort of national press hits definitely helped us for yeah. sure. Yeah. Amazing. All right. So uh, then what happened? You had way too much demand at that point. Yeah. Did you have a, <laughs> did you we have a, did you have production lined up or not? Uh, yeah. We had, we were in talks with manufacturers. We definitely didn't have a contract signed with any of them. Um, we're still figuring out our, our third party logistics partner. Uh, we were really caught like off guard by like the sheer volume. We had 25,000 units pledged before we even had like a a true final sample. So then it became like, all right, we need to, you know, go overseas, really get this underway. And, And we, we were definitely like a little late on delivering. I think we were late by maybe two months, um, which to be totally fair is not, really oh, that's pretty good yeah starter yeah but you know of course customers it, i will say in the in the age of like amazon the expectation is way different right yeah, like they think yeah. you know you're going to get something the next day so for us yeah. two months for some of those people was you know torturous um so we we, we figured that out um we delivered mostly by christmas of last year and then sort of this year has been all about building the brand and innovating and we have you know new product lines under the brand um like various like you know slight variants on the core product so new colors new patterns new prints um and then just working on you know cool partnerships uh yeah just generally trying to build out a a broader wellness brand well tell us tell us a little bit more i want to drill down on the sourcing a little bit uh so if i do the math right you had something like twenty five thousand orders there and I would be certainly quite apprehensive about running a production run of 25,000 without some kind of feedback. So did you, how did you go about that? how did you source and validate the, or how did you identify and validate the, the supplier? And then how did you actually coordinate production? Totally. So we worked with um, a partner who uh, he, this gentleman is a joint venture partner in gravity. He has a, a product sourcing company. So he was ah. former, him and his company were former, um, employees at Quirky. I'm sure you're familiar. They're the, yep. the invention company. So they were all engineers. So we leaned on them. And there's a team that works with us there in Hong Kong. So that was actually like a, a real blessing for us in that we had, you know, feet on the ground there, able to like audit the factories quickly. Um, they had relationships where we could get great, you know, great pricing, stuff that you wouldn't be able to get um, without an established relationship. So it was uh, definitely helpful. Yeah. Um, so I noticed this is I, I try not to embarrass you, but I went to to look for your product today and I see you're sold out again. And yes. that, of course, is a great problem to have, except on the uh, in 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 December. Uh, and totally. so w- tell us a little bit about planning and supply chain and, and managing inventory. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really tough because um, even last year, we actually weren't we didn't have any physical inventory for Christmas. We were you know, of course, in pre-sale mode. So, so this was our first full year of financials. Yeah. Um, so forecasting was definitely a challenge. We, I forecasted a fairly big November and we 3 x it. And oh, that's sort of the wow. reason why we're, um, we're current. We just ran out of stock. I would say we're technically not out of stock. We have like, but sub 200 units left. Um, wow. yeah, we've sold over 120,000 units, um, since we started. So, 
it, it is a bummer. Um, but we had such a big November that it was just sort of unpredictable. So, but we do think we're in a much better place for next year now that we have a good read on like demand. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Michael Grillo, Michael Grillo who's the co-founder and president of Gravity Products, and they make the Gravity Blanket. You can check them out at gravityblankets.com. Um, Michael, so I guess the next question I want to ask you is, if if I... If I have something this phenomenally successful that is based on a relatively simple idea, what is your thinking on on what I do about competition? Yeah, I mean, that's been a big issue for – maybe not issue, but a big thing we think about, right? So the minute we launched, there were immediately a bunch of Me Too's on Amazon. Um, there's, I would say, a handful, maybe three legitimate competitors, and, and by legitimate, I mean – actual companies versus you know individual sellers on amazon so yeah. the first thing we we think about is because we were the sort of first weighted blanket on the market gravity has become sort of synonymous with the category mm. and so ip protection around like our trademark um and you know, aggressive protection around that from a legal standpoint is really key um the other thing was getting on amazon very quickly because that's where a lot of the me too's were popping up and we're sort of you know, hopping on the the gravity name to drive traffic. So if we weren't there, we were missing out on sales. Um, so that that was a big part of the strategy as well. I would say the third thing is that just actually being committed to the the broader wellness space. Like, I don't want to paint us as this like you know like super altruistic brand, but we do very much care about the space. It's a personal passion point of mine. We've donated for a very small company, like have donated over $100,000 to mental health research this year. So trying to differentiate on brand is sort of the third thing we think about in terms of competition. Yeah, I mean, these are great. These are great questions. I mean, these are great challenges. And and I would say, just to underscore at least what I believe about this, I think in in this setting, uh, probably brand is, is the only bet, really, because totally. at the end of the day, this is not this can be replicated so it's about building a brand association a brand reputation uh that's ultimately the moat uh, it seems to me uh, exactly. i mean i totally and take see. yeah oh, go ahead i'm sorry no i totally take your point about additional products but uh, honestly you know i've had a business where i've had a really successful first product and it's really hard to get lightning to strike more than once. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the brand is is probably where most people should be putting their resources. Yeah. And you'll see a lot more brand work from us if you think about like, uh, you know, a lot of our ad ad dollars this year were spent on direct response acquisition marketing. We're going to be doing more um, traditional stuff next year. You'll see us on. We're, we're running local TV this year, but you'll see like yeah. broader brand campaigns on, on TV next year. And so we're excited to continue to sort of build the Gravity brand. Yeah. So let me ask you a little bit about fulfillment and, and about Amazon. So how, you know, you, you 120,000 units. And, and by the way, we know from the name that these are heavy. So yeah. how, do you, uh, <laughs> how do you manage the logistics and fulfillment? Have you been doing that yourself or are you using a third party? And then how do yep. you work with Amazon? Totally. We have um, a third-party logistics provider uh, we warehouse just outside of Chicago. And mm -hmm. I would say because we are, we're lucky enough to do um, 
such high volume, we've been able to get, um, you know, a fairly competitive rate on the shipping. Uh, shipping internationally was definitely something we made a mistake on and that we, when we kickstarted, we shipped to over 75 countries, not Ooh, really thinking about, yeah. yes, it was definitely like a big <laughs> miss. Um, so we, we took a bath on international shipping in year one. We've since like cut that back dramatically. So we're just shipping the, to the U.S. and Canada and even in Canada, we actually distribute mostly through a retail partner called Indigo. They're like mm-hmm. a almost like a Barnes and Noble of Canada. So they, they're really our biggest player in Canada. Um, so that's sort of how we've been managing is trying to keep it local. Um, you know, leaning on Amazon to some extent too. We were you know fulfillment by Amazon or FBA. Um, we warehouse with them for that type of stuff. And of course, they like are shipping two day turnaround. So that that's been great as well. Yeah, you know, my experience with that, I'd be curious to hear your sense. It's, I mean, Amazon is is tough because you got to be there, but yeah. they do take a, a serious cut. On the other hand, the big advantage is is, is prime shipping because they'll put their, yep. you'll put your product in a bunch of different distribution points and your customer will be able to get it in two days. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it's, it sort of cuts both ways, but I, I don't think, I don't think many people have a choice but to work with Amazon at this point. You have to yeah. be with them. They're, they, we're lucky to have a really great, you know, representative at Amazon. He's been amazing. But um, I've heard horror stories as well where they, they really they're very customer centric. They don't necessarily think right. merchant centric. So um, we need to be there. We were their featured deal of the day for Cyber Monday, which was amazing. Wow. Um, but we try to keep. Yeah, it drove a ton of volume for us. But we to sort of hedge against sort of the Amazon effect. We try to keep you know, specific SKUs exclusive to the owned and operated. Um, and we were actually able to outperform our Black Friday outperformed Amazon Cyber Monday for us, um, which was great to see um, because I was getting worried that Amazon would start to cannibalize the core yeah. business. But um, keeping that exclusivity on some SKUs has definitely been helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, Michael, tell us a little bit about about financing. You raised, I mean, the conventional wisdom, and, and I certainly have found this to be true. The conventional wisdom is that you can't actually finance your business off of Kickstarter. Um, now, maybe you can with your product, but in, in, in most products, what people underestimate is just how much work they're going to have to do and refinement uh, and rework and so forth to get their product to market. And it usually isn't enough to cover their the the Kickstarter financing usually isn't enough to cover their cash requirements. What what have you found? And then what have you done about financing as you've grown this business? Yeah, we're really lucky to have not, you know, a lot of the direct consumer brands, uh, you know, of the moment right now have raised a tremendous amount of like, you know, venture debt. Um, that's not something we've done. We we did raise a very small round at Futurism, the media company, and so that definitely has sort of co- definitely covered the first um, couple of POs and certainly helped us out. Um, but we've been really like pragmatic about the way we sort of expend cash. Haven't hired, you know, up until recently we were as small as four people, and only currently have we grown to we're at ten now. Yeah. Um, so definitely didn't overhire. Um, tried to keep things, you know, fairly simple. Only spent on marketing that was performing. So we weren't. We were running, you know, TV now, but for the first year we were really specific about search, social, uh, and display. And you know, if it wasn't performing, we'd cut it. Um, and then we have a, you know, got a good line of credit, and that sort of has been enough to sort of keep us going. But even even for a company, you know, we're not huge. Well, like I said, we're, we'll do seventeen this year. We mm-hmm. still definitely have cash constraints, and you have to start thinking about. 
you know, like when is when do we, you know, would it be too much to place this PO? Should we sort of be more conservative? All that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you, were you able to get I mean, the line of credit is, of course, a huge thing. And uh, presumably that's associated with it's secured by by inventory, I would guess. Um, Correct. Is that how hard was it to set that up? Uh, pretty challenging because most of the the lenders out there will only lend against retail POs yeah. um, versus direct to consumer, um, you know, e-com POs. Mm-hmm. It definitely took a lot of massaging and, and showing the sustainability of the brand. Uh, but yeah, most lenders will only lend against, you know, if Target places a million dollar order, they will lend against that um, versus, you know, a, a direct consumer brand. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, last well, maybe the last topic we'll see. I wanted to ask you about uh, about Brooklyn. So you guys are based in Brooklyn. That, of course, is probably because that's where you were. But uh, yeah. talk a little bit about the startup ecosystem for physical goods manufacturing in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah it's been really interesting. The, the sort of direct-to-consumer ecosystem in, in New York and then Brooklyn specifically is really uh, – New York sort of come into its own in that regard. So Brooklyn is here. Casper's here. Um there's a Quip is here, the direct-to-consumer, you know, toothbrush company. Um, you you name it. There's a, a DTC brand, and so we we do yeah tend to play in that ecosystem quite well. We're like friendly with the Quip people, friendly with the Casper folks, like just sort of talking shop. It's been really interesting and cool to see that those like companies converge. Um, we in terms of manufacturing, we actually did investigate you know producing locally here in the states. It's just not necessarily feasible no, from an economic yeah. standpoint, but um, uh, we, we we try to keep as much uh, love in Brooklyn as possible. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm really glad glad to hear it. Okay, now it's the last question. I cool. I I looked at your uh, just quickly your LinkedIn. It's a little hard to tell exactly what what you know some of those companies are in the middle. But I I would did notice you were a history major and then you're in the media business. So what have you learned about being in the consumer products business? Yeah, I mean, I, my whole career previously was in uh, at ad, ad agencies. So I worked at um, Gary Vaynerchuk's ad agency, which was sort of the, the big moment in my career before this. And I think the difference when you're working at an agency versus like, a, you know, a, your own brand is the amount of time you have to spend with your consumer. Because when you're at an agency, you're so far removed from the consumer. You're working yeah. with a client who's working with, you know, who does, barely touches the consumer. So the amount of exposure we've been getting to, you know, when I go to pop-ups that actually like check out our consumer or help them shop the product, it's been super illuminating and has definitely been like a real advantage uh, in terms of how we market. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for making the time and for joining us on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. For more information, go to gravityblankets.com. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.